Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. As a writer, I am rightly obsessed with text. In a decent example of the written word, nothing is there as padding or by accident. As an actor, I additionally obsess about subtext, the things that remain unwritten. What had largely hitherto escaped me was the wonderful world of the paratext, the thing that sits alongside the table of contents, the footnote, the index. It is on that last item, the index, that I am delighted to welcome my guest today. Dennis Duncan studied English at Manchester University, completed his doctorate at Burbeck, where he also taught. He was a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the Bodleian Library in Oxford and a Monby fellow in bibliography at Cambridge before settling down at the UCL's English department. His latest book, Index, A History of the, charts the fascinating, surprising and at times even subversive history of this uncelebrated paratext. Welcome to the podcast, Dennis. Thank you very much for having me. Dennis, I will admit I found something very surprising on almost every single page of the book, which was a, a, a quite thrilling experience, a sort of apotheosis of geekdom. One of those surprises was that professional indexes predate printed books. I was floored by the impossible economics of that, you know, that that there were professional indexes before books were mass-produced. Tell us a little about this very first era of the index. Well, that's right. Okay, so the, the index sort of uh, arrives at the start of the 13th century, and it arrives along with a whole host of other tools that are doing the same job. When I say the same job, I mean the job of allowing us to use books more quickly. Hmm. Now, in a monastic environment, if you are a monk and your whole life is going to be spent in a monastery getting close to God, Reading is absolutely central to monastic life. You have reading at dinner, somebody will read, you get up in the middle of the night for a few hours quiet reading, but really it doesn't matter how fast you go. <laughs> you have time, let's face it. <laughs> Enjoy the Bible and to, to really start to sort of meditatively understand the Bible, to take in the Bible on every level um, and to get closer to it. Um, when we need to read faster, though, well, two things happen. One is universities arrive around about the turn of the 13th century. The other one is the preaching orders arrive because of certain things, certain heresies. The idea of monks being these isolated communities that never go anywhere near the people isn't enough. And the friar, the idea of the friar who will live in the cities, live in, in poverty and will preach all the time to stop people going astray comes along. So you have two new requirements, the lecture and the sermon, preaching and teaching. And in order to do these, you need to be able to use your books a bit faster. You say, okay, I'm going to do a sermon this weekend. It's going to be, it's going to be about bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Where else can I find bread? What else can I say? Okay, there's the feeding of the 5,000. There's the, the manna from heaven. What else is there? Then you need an index to quickly, to jump you around like, like kind of wormholes through the text. Here's, here's a bit you can use. Here's something else you can use. So when we start to, if I can say, use books, rather than read books, then we need to, to be able to navigate them in a different way. Just that slow, linear movement through the book is not going to be enough. So the index comes along, and um, so do a host of other things. The index arrives at the same time as things like red and blue alternating initials to tell us where 
different verses start, paragraphing, running heads along the top, all of these things. If you think of a reference book now, the, the way that a, a dictionary looks different from a novel or an encyclopedia, it yeah. has bullet points, it has different size type, it has emboldened stuff, it has running heads along the top. All of these are essentially inventions of the early 13th century, that moment where people needed to morselize the contents of books needed mm. I, I need that bit i can't start at the beginning and wait till i get to the feeding of the five thousand. i need it now where is it and presumably responding to queries as well because someone might mm. come up to you and say what does the bible say about x exactly um, yes. and you needed to look knowledgeable and quickly Good. That's right. This, the, the, when you describe it like that, we can think of it as a, as a kind of legalistic use of the text as well. You know, where's mm. the precedent? Where can I find blah? There's an economics of time around reading that emerges then. Slow personal reading isn't enough. I need to think of a book as a container for lots of pieces of information, and I need to be able to get to those quickly. Was the format of the index uh, settled on too quickly or over time? And were there more than one format uh, sort of battling a, a VHS index, fighting it out with a Betamax index? That's, that's, that's so right. That, that's exactly spot on. There's a wonderful version of the index, which is really the Betamax, unfortunately. Yes, the index <laughs> is invented twice in, in the year 1230, two formats, VHS and Betamax. One is what we'd call the, the word index the concordance. This is where the, the monks in Paris, or the friars in Paris actually, Dominican friars, broke down the Bible into its words and put them in alphabetical order. Now you can find every mention of fish or bread. You just look up fish and it will tell you, okay, there's Luke 4, there's Genesis 2, whatever. Wow. Um, so it's, it's vast. It's 10,000 words, 129,000 locations, but it's the word index of the Bible. Over in Oxford, there was a man called Robert Grosstest who was doing something slightly different, which was an index of everything. This is the sort of Google avant the lettre, the, the, the parchment Google. Grosstest was an incredible polymath. He had read everything. He'd read the scriptures, he'd read the Bible, but he'd also gone into pagan philosophy, in, into Aristotle, into Arabic philosophy. As he went along, he made a note of wherever what he thought the key concepts, about 400 key concepts were mentioned. So every time he came across one of those concepts, he'd make a note mm. of location. And so gross tests index is, for a start, it's not alphabetical, actually. It, it's, uh, it's in order of how he thinks these concepts relate to each other. But it's a universal index. Like I say, it's, it's the Google, it's the search engine of, mm, of mm, the early 13th century. It can tell you whether contemporary Arabic philosophy has anything to say about whether God exists or the Trinity, but it can also tell you that well, Genesis 1 tells us that God exists because in the beginning God created heaven and earth and, and so on. So it's kind of remarkable, but it isn't the one that caught on. I'm afraid gross test. <laughs> it's always the case, isn't it? Yeah, it's really the Betamax. D Dennis, was there a, a point when indexing, let's say, hit the big time, when it made it out of practitioners' books like legal texts and, and uh, Bibles and academic volumes into sort of everyday books? Yes, absolutely. And that moment is when printing arrives. Now, the problem is um, indexing catches on a little bit in the medieval period. Indexing catches on in the 13th century after it's been invented twice. But every time you write an index in these days, where, where, where it, in the medieval period, when books are being copied out by hand, 
Your copy of the book and my copy of the book have got the same words in them, but not on the same pages. Because if you're copying out something, Mm. don't stick to the same pagination. I might be copying a history book from a large format book into a small format book. So all of my page numbers are going to be like two or three times bigger than the original. Um, When printing comes along, everybody's on the same page. Your page 16 is the same as my page 16. So suddenly we can start to do an index using the page number as our locator. Instead of Mm. saying chapter and verse, I can just say, well, this thing occurs on page 16. Alex, I'm sending you a letter and I'm sending you a book. I tell you what, I think you'd really like what's on page 32. And I know that your page 32 is the same as mine. We're on the same page. Then you get indexes in everything. We don't need to wait for somebody to divide a book up into chapter and verse. We can use an index that, that points to page numbers. So by the start of the 16th century, yes, we find indexes in printed history books, science books, religious books, legal books. There's a bit in Orlando Furioso, the, the great mm. epic of the early 16th century, where a knight has a spell book and suddenly he needs to use it. And the poem says something along the lines of, and he knew exactly where to look because he looked up the spell in the index. So even fictional spell books by, by 1560 <laughs> indexes and knights know how to use them. The index is really broken through. And this is because of the uniformity that, that printing allows. And, and we will speak about another Orlando later on in our chat. <laughs> you credit indexes from everything from keeping heretics safe to limiting people's political careers. What mm. would you choose as the, the single most influential thing that has flowed out of an index entry? Be as tenuous as you like. <laughs> well, my favourite thing, I don't know if this is the single most influential thing, but, but certainly ha- it has had uh, repercussions, is the idea of the attack index, the satirical index. You mentioned indexes have kept politicians from high office. Now, round about the start of the 18th century, some wits of the age get the idea that, look, everyone knows how indexes work now. The index is a, is a familiar paratext. What if we start playing around with it? What if we start doing an index that actually undermines the text that it's supposed to be sort of supporting? So 1705, there's a politician called William Bromley, Tory MP, and he's running for Speaker of the House of Commons. A few years earlier, about 10 or 15 years earlier, when he was a young man, Bromley had done the grand tour around France and Italy, Mm -hmm. and he'd written it up. He published a book, Bromley's Grand Tours, uh, and it had come out and and then vanished without a trace. Now, three days before the election for Speaker of the House of Commons, a new edition turns up, and Bromley (laughs) has brought it out. It's Bromley's rival, Robert Harley, who's produced this new edition, and it's identical to the first one, except that it now has an index, and the index points to all the moments in the text where Bromley looks like an idiot. Bromley looks (laughs) or a bit too sympathetic to the Pope, or a bit too friendly to foreigners, or just when he uses bad syntax. It's an index of basically Bromley's stupidity. Mm. And it comes out three days before. It's like something coming out in, in, in private eye just in time. In that yes, yes, issue. yes. I mean, I sometimes think that we we feel we've invented laser-guided timing with, with the internet and blogging. But actually, back in the days when everything had to be set by hand, you could still do this really accurate timing. Three days is just long enough for everyone to be talking about it. But it's not so long that it's kind of gone off the burn. Yes, that it fizzles out. Thing. 
Bromley loses the election and he's furious and he totally believes that it's the index that's cost him the election. He writes this very sort of uh, um, petulant note in his own copy of the book saying yes. this is an example of the singular behaviour of the faction. Uh, I can't remember. But this is an index that's kept somebody from from Speaker of House of Commons. And what it's done as well is it, it sort of kick-started the idea that indexes can be subversive. The I, We hope... Mm when we use a search engine or when we use an index at the back of the book, that the index is ideologically aligned to the book, that, that, yes. that these things, but if they're not, we can have quite a lot of fun. You also look at a particularly fascinating area, which is the relationship between the index and fiction. How did that parallel strand develop? That's really interesting. So we know that when you get a novel, it won't have an index. It's a sort of unwritten rule that fiction doesn't have an index, nonfiction should. Um, but it hasn't always been like that. Mm. In the early days of the novel, these ideas hadn't really been established yet. So Samuel Richardson, a great novelist of, of the uh, sort of mid-18th century, one of, one of the early novelists whose novels are Clarissa, Pamela, Charles Grandison, yeah, Dullsville, by the way. Um, <laughs> sorry, Clarissa is an awfully plodding thing. Anyway, sorry, you might be a big, big fan of his. But Richardson knows that it's a it, maybe, maybe dull, maybe your favourite thing, but it's bloody long. Excuse my language. <laughs> very, very long. People say that it's the longest novel in the English language. So, uh, certainly Rich- feels like it. <laughs> Richardson decides, okay, I'm going to compile an index to this. So if people want to use it, there's that distinction between reading and using again. If if people have read my novel, they love it very much, and now they want to go back to that bit, the duel or whatever, here's an index so that you can find your way back into it. So I think the fourth edition of Clarissa, 1751, comes out with a huge index, 85 pages of index. And there's even an index to the index, you know, to (laughs) another couple of pages to help you sort of, you know, on a a meta-meta level to to navigate back through to the text. It doesn't catch on, but it shows at this point, the novel hasn't sort of settled down into this thing, well, fiction Mm. doesn't have an index. The reason I think that it does is because of the way that we generally treat fiction. Novels are one type of book that we read from start to finish because we follow a narrative linearly. Start to finish, we read it once and then we take it to the charity shop. And if you do that, then you don't need a way of navigating. If you have a very long straight road with no turnings, then you don't need any road signs. So the Mm. index doesn't really have a value unless the novel is something that you expect to return to, or unless the novel is something where you expect it to have multiple points of entry where people might want to. Which is also why you write that an index sort of confers a status on a work, that adding an index to the collected works of Jane Austen bestows on them a particular quality that they are forever that they are a thing you will return to that's exactly right so a novel doesn't need an index because you read it once start to finish then you take it to the charity shop but if you don't take it to the charity shop if you think 
I'm coming back to this. This is the, I shall be using this to teach or I shall be using this to take down and, and sort of lecture to my children or, or that kind of thing. Once the novel becomes an uber classic, something that we quote from, something that we might want to look something up in, then they start to get indexes. So there are indexes, as you say, to, to Jane Austen, to Proust, to Lord of the Rings. And what these things have in common is that they're all the sort of canonical uber classics that mm. people don't just read once, but but read and go back to, or read and then want to go back to certain moments. Now you're not on a long straight road with no turnings. You have essentially the same thing as a history book. You have a, po- mm. a, a book where you want to morsalize it, to take out some of its units, to return to, to bits and, and navigate around. So these texts do have indexes. And it takes a journey through all the way to J.G. Ballard, uh, the index, in which the index is the literary device by which the story is told. Ballard is amazing. I mean, uh, Ballard has this wonderful short story called The Index, and the premise is this, that a biography has been written of this man called H.R. Hamilton, Henry Rhodes Hamilton, I think, who is a megalomaniac who starts a cult and takes over the world and ends up in uh, a lunatic asylum. The trouble is the biography has been written but the text of it mysteriously goes missing. The whole thing is a um, sort of paranoid story about um, <laughs> some cult leaders, but Hamilton's biography has gone missing. And the only thing that remains of it, the only thing that the whoever it is, the assassin hasn't nicked is the index. And so the story is for us to construct a narrative from this alphabetical index entries under Gandhi for instance show that oh uh, Hamilton met Gandhi entries under oh I don't know uh, he he lands at Iwo Jima and and all of these we we have to piece together the narrative by uh, looking things up in this kind of non-linear index it's a really clever way of, of of playing with the reader's capacity for putting the jigsaw of a narrative together. And somewhere in there, you also have the other Orlando, Virginia Woolf's Orlando. Well, actually, it's the same Orlando, but a different take on Orlando, where the the index is used as as an instrument of spite, almost, isn't it? Yes, that's right. But also, I should say, the other type of novel that does have an index, so I said uber classics have an index. The other type of novel that, that, that has indexes are novels that are pretending that they aren't novels. And Orlando is one of these. Nabokov's Pale Fire is another. It's a novel that pretends that it's a scholarly edition of the yeah. poem. Orlando, the full name of Virginia Woolf's Orlando is Orlando colon, a biography. So it's a novel that's playing at being a biography. And part of that play, part of that sort of cross-dressing across genres, is that it includes an index. So it doesn't look like a novel because it's got an index. This was a problem for Virginia Woolf because this play across genres was so convincing that when the the book came out, bookshops started shelving it on their non-fiction shelves, putting it on the the biography section. And Woolf is not just the author, she's also the publisher. This comes out with her own Mm. press, the Hogarth Press. And Woolf is frantic in her diary. She says, we're going to lose money. Like, no one's going to buy my new novel because they won't be able to find it. Because she's basically just done too good a job of of, of making her (laughs) novel look like something else. (laughs) You write of the creative control in indexer exercises. Um, and, and this is something that hadn't occurred to me, even though I know from friends who write that there are often creative differences and occasionally tussles between author and indexer. 
I know especially, for instance, that in food writing, debate rages as to whether listing everything under the dish name or under the primary ingredients is better. Have there been cases where such disagreements between author and indexer have spilled out in public? Yeah, they really have. So let's get back to the 18th century. So I I say the attack index is is invented in, in the 18th century. It really catches on. It has a moment for a couple of decades where people are politicians are making fun of each other through these satirical indexes. But while this is going on, there's a case where the attack index goes completely undercover. Now, there's a famous history of England, Tory history of England, that mm. reaches completion in 1718. It's by a, a man called Lawrence Etchard, and particularly its coverage of the Civil War, the previous century. It has a very strong Tory bias. Now, the publisher, Jacob Thompson, sends it out to an indexer, just a professional indexer, a hack indexer called John Oldmixon. Oldmixon, however, has another career as quite a virulent Whig pamphleteer. And he's asked to do this index. And what he does is he completely undermines the Toriness of Etchard's history. He makes fun of certain scenes. There's a conspiracy theory when James Stewart has a child. The worry is that the child is going to be a a Catholic heir to the throne. (laughs) And the Whig faction are very concerned about this to the extent that they assume that it can't really be his. It would be very convenient if this wasn't the true heir. And the the conspiracy theory goes round that, that the Queen actually can't give birth, but the baby has been smuggled in a warming pan, which is kind of 17th century hot water bottle into the queen's bed and this is this is terrible but it's not it's not really her baby therefore we won't have a catholic heir to the throne so you have the the warming pan conspiracy theory now etchard's history says this is nonsense of course not but under the entry warming pan in the index old mixon's put very convenient to james and and so on and so we get lots of entries like this that are directly contradicting the ideology of, of the main text. This doesn't come to the attention of, of, of readers for about a decade. It's only about a decade after Richard's history has done the rounds that a pamphlet emerges saying, oh my God, look at the index. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible, what's happened here? So yes, exactly, creative control. Now this this history book is really long. It's a three-volume history. You might not read it from start to finish. What Old Mixon knew is if you control the entry point to the book, yeah. You can control how people see it. You can already have started making fun of it before people get to the text. You've sort of uh, uh, organised the way that it's going to be received. So you end your book with not one, but two indexes. Uh, By the way, why is it indexes and not indices? Was this something that (laughs) occupied quite a lot of of your time before you sat down to write this? It comes up a lot. Whenever I told people (laughs) I was writing a book about indexes, they'd always go, oh, is it indexes or is it indices, though? The decision is really made by Shakespeare. Shakespeare in uh, Troilus and Cressida about indexes. And I think since then... Some people, myself among them, have thought, well, if it's good enough for Shakespeare, then yes. <laughs> we can use the anglicised format. So I think uh, indices are something that, that economists and mathematicians use. Yes. The things that you find at the back of books, according to Shakespeare, are indexes. So let's call them that. So you end with two of them, because nowadays they're, of course, computer generated. So you give the sort of computer identified uh, list for the letter A, which includes entries like... 
alphabetical Africa and amusement, <laughs> comma, mere, um, yeah. before the book's real index in which a human being has intervened and judged what deserves to be in there and why. It is a sort of hopeful, we still need indexes <laughs> note. But do we? When I can control F any term in any text of any length, why do I still need an index? Well, that's a very good question. I fear that if you asked me that in 20 years, the answer would be different. But at the moment, as you say, you can take a document, you can search through it very well with control F, as long as you know what you're looking for. So any document, um, we have the power to, to, to jump through it as long as we spell everything right and we know what we're looking for. You know, when you've tried to search through a document and you've made a slight spelling mistake in your search mm, term, mm. It's not there. well, that's part of the problem. But the other thing is that if you jump through a document using control F, you really need to know exactly what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, give you an example, the prodigal son. Famous. Sto- What's the most famous story in the Bible of forgiveness? Well, it's the prodigal son. Trouble is, it doesn't contain the word forgiveness or mercy or prodigal. So if you're controlling F, if you think control F is always going to take you to the thing that you want, well, what if it's not there? I'll give you another example then. Imagine a book of contemporary history, a book about British politics over the last five or six years. Now, Control-F doesn't know that every time the book says number 10 or Downing Street, what they mean is the Prime Minister. Every time the book says the Cabinet, we're really talking about the same thing. Mm. So an indexer, however, will know that just because of the way we speak, just because of uh, um, metonymy and the way that we speak, when we say number 10 put out a statement that means that said such and such, that means the Prime Minister said mm. such and such. The indexer will also know that if this is a book from the period 2016 to 2021, we've had three different prime ministers. So when when the book says the prime minister said such and such, the indexer will know whether that needs to go under May Theresa or Cameron David or Johnson Boris. Control F can't do that. So when we want to use this history book, when we want to look up what Theresa May said, a good indexer will be able to take us to all the moments where yes. she said these things. Control F is going to get confused with prime ministers. It's going to get confused with the, the, the idiosyncrasies of English, the metonymy of, of, of the way that we talk about things. That's just one example. But a subject indexer now can identify concepts even when they aren't labelled in the text. Control F can't do that for us. Mm. So at the moment, a good index, and I hope by including those two indexes in my book, the one that's generated by modern indexing software and the one that's generated by an incredibly clever lady called Paula, the difference between them in quality is stark. Paula has oh, yes. concepts. Paula has stamped her own personality, actually, on her own her own wit. I, I found your parallel between indexes and hashtags a particularly wonderful one because <laughs> actually that process of, you know, reducing something to a one-word thing that might also be amusing or subversive. I mean, it's not something I had thought before, but you're absolutely spot on. They are cousins. One final question. There are 
today societies of indexers and the Indexer mm-hmm. magazine and even a national indexing day, the whole thing, the whole world felt strangely underground, like like I had walked into a sort of a sex club dedicated to a very specific <laughs> fetish. So I now want you to do an entire series of this on contents and footnotes and every kind of paradox. What is next for you? That's a good question. You know what? Uh, I have to plug a book that I did do on the other things, a book called Book Parts, which where other scholars that I know have written those chapters, the history of the page number, the history of the footnote of the title page and so on. What's next for me? I would like to do a book on English literary eccentrics. Mm. So people who are outside the mainstream, we have our canon that, that runs from, from Chaucer to whoever it is nowadays, but always, and I'm not talking about the avant-garde here, but always there have been outsider artists sort of ploughing their own furrow, working sort of gloriously against the grain, not even really knowing what the grain was in their own times. So I think I'm going to do some research on, on kind of recuperating this counter canon of literary eccentrics. I wish you the best of luck with it, Dennis. Thank you for your time, your book and this wonderful conversation. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Index A History of the by Dennis Duncan is out now. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. And you can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. Let me end with Dennis's ode to the professional indexer. Learned, vigilant, goes before us, levelling mountains and beating paths, so that we, time-poor students at the finger post, can arrive swiftly but unruffled at the passage, the quotation, the datum, the knowledge we need. This is Andreu, comma, Alex, comma, in the bunker, saying over and out. Andreu, comma, Alex. Presentation. Archbold, comma, Jacob. Assistant Production Dickinson, Kenny Theme Tune Harrison, Andrew Executive Production Sofronievich, Yalina Assistant Production Reese, Alex Audio Production The Bunker is an imprint of the Podmasters Publishing House <laughs>